Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. Whether you are here with us today or you're listening to us online, the group of people that I wanted to talk to are the people who grew up in church, who grew up going to church week after week with your family, with your parents, and at some point, you stepped away. At some point, as you were growing up, you were taught certain things, and then when you grew up, you found that those things didn't match with the life that you were living or what you had seen, that you couldn't reconcile what you were taught at church as a child with what science says, that you couldn't reconcile what you were taught in church with your experiences in life. And so when it came down to it, when you had to choose between something theoretical that someone had taught you, and yet the practical reality of the life that you were living, you decided to step away. Because you just couldn't reconcile what you were taught with science, and you couldn't reconcile what you were taught with the pain and suffering in the world. You couldn't reconcile what you were taught with the injustices that you see all around you. And so the entire purpose of this series has been for you, if this is you, for you to come so that I can give you an invitation to reconsider Christianity. Not the Christianity of your childhood, but a grown-up Christianity. A grown-up Christianity with a grown-up God. Because whatever it was that was your objection to church, whether you were, grew up as church and you stepped away, or maybe you've kind of have just been on the periphery of church, periphery of church people, but never was able to or wanted to take that step to see what was going on inside. You may have had an objection, and that objection may not have been valid. Because what we've been talking about for the last few weeks is that there has, this, has been this, this false tension between doubt and despair. This false tension between doubt and despair. See, for many of us, embracing religion left us with doubts. Embracing religion left us with things that we just couldn't reconcile with our world. And the more that we asked fa- fact-based questions the more we were given faith-based answers and they left us not knowing what was real and what was right. And we had a childhood God that never grew up. And yet, most of us, most of you who stepped away haven't been able to fully embrace atheism either. And it leaves you with a sense of of despair. And I'm not saying that you, if you're an atheist, that you live your entire life with despair. But if you are an atheist, many atheists believe that if there is nothing going on, there's nothing else after this, that this life is all that there is, then what's the purpose? And there's a difficulty in accepting that, that there's nothing more than this. And so even embracing atheism also leaves you with doubts. And that's why many people who have stepped away from Christianity haven't been able to bring themselves 
to check that atheist box on the forms. And so you're left in this place where you feel like you're a little bit lost in the middle. So for those of you who have stepped away from Christianity, but haven't really stepped into anything else, you know, you're, you're what we talked about the first week, you're, you're part of that group of people, that growing group of people called the nuns, that you're not hostile towards anything, but, but you're not affiliated with anything. You're just none. I want to invite you to reconsider and to consider coming back because the reality is, is the church and people who do what I do did a bad job in laying a foundation for many people when they grew up. It all made sense as a child, but when they grew up, it didn't feel like it made any more sense. And I'm going to own that. That's our fault. That's the church's fault. But that shouldn't be a reason for you to abandon everything because we made a mistake. See, we gave you a childhood faith that never grew up. And listen, here's what I know from the many people that I have talked to. If I had been taught what you had been taught, and if I had experienced in life what you experienced in life, I would probably have made the same decision that you made to step away. I'm just asking you to reconsider, to reconsider. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how, how God's appeal got cluttered up with a bunch of gods that never really existed. That there were gods that we were taught growing up that, 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 would, that, that gave us this impression that only good things happen to good people and only bad things happen to bad people, but that really wasn't who God was. We talked about the, the different gods that, that we got an impression of, but weren't really gods that existed. And then last week, we kind of went through a real quick history lesson, and we talked about the, for the Bible tells me so Jesus, and, and how Christianity does not hang on the Bible. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. In fact, what we said last week was it was the other way around, that it is because of Christianity that there is a Bible. But somehow, we got the idea from living in a country and in a place where it was just assumed that we had to take for granted that everything in the Bible was true and couldn't be questioned. And yet, 50 years later, living in the same country, and everybody is questioning it. But when you base your foundation for your faith on the Bible, then as the Bible goes, so goes your faith. And so if they can poke holes in the Bible, then they can poke holes in your faith. But Christianity does not rise and fall on the integrity or the verifiability of everything in the Bible. And what we talked about last week was that Christianity actually preceded the Bible. That the reason that we have a Bible at all is because of Christianity. So today what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about that. When uh, this interesting thing, when Jesus was walking on the earth, he, he did this thing that really upset the religious people. Um, and it always got him into trouble. See, Jesus, and Jesus was a Jew. And Jesus would always tell the Jewish people who were listening to him, he would tell them that the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but back then they didn't call it that, it was just the Jewish scriptures. He said that the Jewish scriptures all pointed 
to him. They were all about him. He would say, everything that is written in our scriptures points to me. And the religious people hated that. They said, that's blasphemy. You can't say things like that. But Jesus, he wouldn't let them stop him. He said, I am the fulfillment of all of the things that we learned about when we were growing up as Jewish children. All of those things that we learned are fulfilled in me. And they just shook their heads. That's blasphemy. Who would say that? And yet his closest followers, the people that spent the most time with Jesus, started to believe what he was saying. Because when you looked at the Jewish scriptures, and then you look at Jesus, you, like them, will look at that and you'll start to say, wait a second. Everything he's saying makes sense. Everything that is written in these Jewish scriptures sounds like it's talking about Jesus. And they started to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Jewish scriptures. And then he was crucified. And they thought that was it. They thought Jesus must have been wrong. And they thought that we must have been wrong for following Jesus because he was wrong, because he was dead. After the crucifixion, there were no followers of Jesus left because they thought when he died, that was it. After the crucifixion, no one believed anything that Jesus taught. No one believed that Jesus was the Son of God because he died. And they thought that was it. And then two days later, he rises from the dead. The next morning, he's having breakfast with them on the beach. And suddenly, they looked at their Jewish scriptures again, and they said, no, wait a second. It all makes sense now. This is exactly what is written in the book, that this is what was going to happen. It finally clicked for them, and they said, yes, I get it now. Everything he said was right. We were wrong. And they went out in the streets, and they started telling everybody, that we had it wrong, he is alive, we have seen him, everything that he said was true, and everything in our Jewish scriptures points to Jesus. Now, the Gentiles, and that's just the word that the Bible uses to describe everybody who wasn't a Jew, the Gentiles who became Jesus' followers suddenly became interested in the Jewish scriptures. Not because they were wanting to be Jewish, but they became interested in the Jewish scriptures because as they became exposed to the Jewish scriptures, and that took a long time because the only place you could find the Jewish scriptures were in Jewish synagogues. So how they were exposed to those scriptures was very slow. But what they realized was, is as they were understanding more of what the Jewish scriptures were saying, they recognized that what Jesus said was true that all of those ancient writings pointed towards Jesus. That everything in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today, pointed to Jesus. That is why the Gentiles became interested in the Jewish scriptures. I will give you one example. It is Isaiah 53. 
Now, Isaiah 53 was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. It's in the Jewish scriptures. It's also in our Bible today. The exact same scripture, the exact same words. You compare the Jewish scripture and you compare what's in our Bible today, it's exactly the same. If you read Isaiah 53, all you have to do is, as you're reading it, is ask yourself, what does it sound like? Who is Isaiah talking about? And what you realize is, is that Isaiah 53, like many other passages in the Old Testament, in in the Jewish scriptures, is talking about Jesus. It's talking about Jesus. And that's what Jesus said. Jesus said that everything in the Old Testament points to me. Now, when the Gentiles from the first, second, and third century who became Jesus followers, when they saw that everything in the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus, they fell in love with the Jewish scriptures. And then they did something that was so offensive to the Jews. In fact, if we were to look at the equivalent today for many people who are Christians, who are raised Christians, who value the Bible, it would be offensive to us too. What the Gentiles did is they took the Jewish scriptures, the equivalent of the Bible for Christians today, they took the Jewish scriptures, and then they took all of the manuscripts and the letters that were written by the first century followers of Jesus, and they put them together, wrapped them up in one book, and they said, this is now our holy scriptures. Now think about that. That would be like some guy taking the Bible, walking down to Barnes & Noble, grabbing the top 10 self-help books that are on the shelves, putting them together, bounding them up in one book and saying, this is now our holy word. How offensive would that be to Christians today? And yet this is what the early Gentiles and the early Christians in the first, second, and third centuries did. They combined them together and eventually they would call it the Bible. They just took the Jewish scriptures, not because they wanted to be Jewish, But because once they became followers of Jesus and they realized that the Jewish scriptures all pointed to Jesus, they wanted to have those scriptures be a part of their faith system. So they put them together. They put them together and there was a top half and a bottom half, you know, the first half and the second half, and they called that first part, the Jewish scriptures, they called that the Old Covenant, which was also offensive to the Jewish people. Because for them, it's like, what are you saying, old covenant? This is the current covenant, right? This is what we are reading today. But no, we're going to call that the old covenant, and we're going to take everything else, we're going to put it right underneath, and we're going to call that the new covenant. Because that's what Jesus said he came to inaugurate, was a new covenant. Then around 170 AD, there was this guy, and his name was Melito of Sardis. He was the first person to actually label the Jewish scriptures as the Old Testament. Um, Melito of Sardis was a Christian, but he wasn't a Jew. He was a Christian, and he was a rich man. And he was fascinated that the Jewish scriptures pointed to Jesus, and he wanted to find out more. So we found out from a letter that he wrote that survived all of these years, we found out in this letter that because of his interest in it and because he had the ability to do it because he was rich, 
he went to the area, what, what he called in the letter Palestine, and there he, compi- he compiled the very first list of the books that we call today the Old Testament. So for the first few hundred years of Christianity, the Gentiles were fascinated with the Jewish scriptures. They eventually combined them together. They called the old part the Jewish part as the Old Testament. They called the new part the New Testament. And that was their new book. And they called it the Bible. You see, Christianity, this faith that we are a part of, it came before the Bible. In fact, Christianity is the reason that we have a Bible. So if you stepped away from faith because of something that was written in the Bible or something that someone told you about the Bible or a movie that you saw that was about the Bible, if you stepped away from faith because of that, or maybe you couldn't reconcile science with the Bible, or maybe you couldn't reconcile an experience that you had with what was written in the Bible, then I want you to consider that maybe you stepped away from Christianity unnecessarily. You see, the reason that the Christians of the first, second, and third century took the Jewish scriptures seriously is because they pointed to Jesus. They didn't grow up being told that the Jewish scriptures were God's word. It wasn't until they were adults and they saw what happened to Jesus and they read that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Jesus that they said, hey, we have to take this seriously because it points to Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. I'm not changing anything in the Jewish scriptures. I'm not here to do away with that, but I am taking them seriously because they point to me. That's why I, me personally, I take them seriously because they point to Jesus. And Christianity does not rise and fall on the verifiability or the accuracy of the Old Testament. In fact, Christianity began without an Old Testament. Christianity grew fastest without an Old Testament. And again, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but the reason people became Christians is not because of the Old Testament Scriptures. It was because of what Jesus said and then what they saw. Jesus said, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back. And he died and they thought it was game over. And then he came back. And people followed Jesus. People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. Not because of the Bible. They followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. And the evidence of the resurrection at the time was overwhelming. And there was nothing religious about their faith. There was nothing religious about their faith. They did not have faith in something that they were told. They had faith in something that they saw. And it was because it was something that they saw that they believed. They saw him die. They saw him put in a tomb. 
The next day, they're having breakfast with him on the beach. Let me tell you something. If you were there and you saw him die, you saw that he was put into a tomb, and the next morning, you're having breakfast with him on the beach, it would take you very little faith to believe what you were seeing. It was not a religious thing for the first century Christians because it was not about having belief in faith. It was having belief in what they had seen. And so just as what Jesus said about himself can be trusted, what Jesus said about God can be trusted. What Jesus said about God can be trusted. And fortunately for us, the writers of the New Testament documented what Jesus said about God. So if you are here today and you are open to restarting your faith journey, or if you are open to maybe taking that first step in your faith journey, the place to begin in understanding God is Jesus. Jesus is the place to start. Jesus said that you can trust what he says about God and this drove the religious leaders crazy because they were supposed to be the only ones who could help you understand God. So one of his followers, one of his friends was a guy named John. John knew Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. They exiled him instead of killing him because what happened was every time they killed one of the Christian martyrs, a thousand more would pop up. And they said, we can't do this anymore. So instead of killing him, they put him on an island. John, who had seen more violence, who had seen more killing than all of us here put together, who had lost friends in the Roman persecution of the Christians and in the killing of Christians by the religious leaders, John came to believe that Jesus knew what he was talking about. And so there is this incident where John recorded what Jesus said. Jesus was, was hanging out with his 12 disciples, with the 12 people who knew him best, the 12 people that he spent the most time with. And this is what John records Jesus saying. He says this, If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. If you know who I am, then you know who he is. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. And they must have looked at him and said, um, no, we haven't seen him. We've been looking. He hasn't made an appearance. I mean, we look in the scriptures and we know what it's like when he comes around, right? There's fire, there's smoke. There's a lot of people yelling and screaming. You know, I mean, it's just crazy when he's here. We haven't seen him. So Philip, one of his guys, Philip, says something that everyone there is thinking. He says, just show us what the Father is like. He says this, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. They're like, listen, we've heard you talking. For three years we've been listening. You talk like you know him. You talk like you have some kind of special relationship with God, like you've seen him. So can't you just talk to him? I mean, can't you just, you know call him up and tell him, hey, can you just make an appearance? Can you just let us see him? I mean, just for a second, so that we will know 
what God is like. And then Jesus says the craziest thing. And you may have heard this before. If you grew up in church, if you grew up reading the scriptures, you may have heard this. Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And they're like, there you go again, Jesus, saying that stuff. Doesn't make any sense. But he goes on and he says this, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. This is what he's saying. He's saying, do you want to know what God says? Listen to me. Do you want to know what God is doing? Watch me. Do you want to know what God says? Listen, this is as close as you're going to get. So listen to me. Do you want to know what God is doing in the world today? Watch what I'm doing. Watch me. And then he says something that you may have missed if you've read this before. He says, just believe, just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, we know that that rarely works, right? Just stop worrying. Just relax. You know, how many of those things have we said? Those never work. So he doesn't leave it there. He says, listen, if you don't want to believe what I am saying, then he goes on and he says, or at least, if you don't trust the words that I'm saying, then at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. See, forget about what I said, because sometimes you don't believe what people say because they say one thing and they do another, right? So if you don't want to believe what I'm saying, Jesus says, believe because of the work that you have seen me do. Believe because of the work that you have seen me do. Jesus is saying, look, I understand that what I'm asking you to believe is extreme. I get that it sounds crazy. I get that it sounds like I'm saying that there's something godlike in me. I get that only a crazy person would say these things, and I realize that what I'm telling you is hard to believe. So if you can't believe the words that I am telling you, then look at what you have seen me do. See, he's not asking them to have faith in their belief. He's asking them to have faith in what they've seen. So as we kind of pivot here, here's the question for us. What did Jesus say about God? What did he say? I mean, if we were able to, for a moment, erase from our minds everything that we know about God, everything that we were taught about God, every conclusion that we came to about God, if we got rid of this whole idea of, of God as this old man in a white robe in the clouds with a big staff, right? If we got rid of this image that we may have grown up with of of Superman God or Secret Service God, if we put all of those aside and we just came to Jesus and we said, okay, blank slate, tell me what God is like. Jesus would say this, God is spirit. There's an account where Jesus is talking to a woman. It's for those of you who know the Bible, grew up with the Bible, it's, it's, it's the woman at the well 
the woman at the well is having a debate with Jesus. And the woman at the well, she's a Samaritan. So she has a very different view of what God is like than what Jesus has. And so she's arguing with Jesus about what God is like. And in this conversation, Jesus, who shows such great compassion to this woman, he says this, For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Now, the ancient Jews, they understood this. For the ancient Jews, this is what they believed. They believed that God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a physical presence. You are not able to reach out and touch God. He is spaceless. He is timeless. That's why the ancient Jews weren't allowed to make any image of God. None. You can't make a statue of God. You can't paint a picture of God. Why? Because Jesus says God is spirit. He is not limited by time. He is not limited by space. He is not limited by touch. And this whole idea flew in the face of all of the pagans who were living there at the time. Because every other culture around them had idols. They had idols that they bowed down and worshipped to. They built temples for the idols to be in. They could pick up their idols. They could move them around. In fact, many households had household gods, household idols. The Jews had always believed that God is spirit. And Jesus comes and says, let me tell you something. What the Jews have been telling you all of these years that God is spirit, that is correct. God is spirit. And this is exactly what you and I, living here in 2018, with all of our advances in science and technology, with all of the things that we know today, this is exactly what we would expect, that God is spirit. You see, scientists tell us that at some point, there was an event, they, they call it a singularity, that nothing existed, and then this tiny singularity happened, and from that singularity came everything. From that singularity came space. From that singularity came time. From that singularity came matter. From that singularity came all of the laws of nature, all of the laws of physics. Everything that governs and exists in our world today came from that one event. That's what scientists tell us today. That everything in our world can be traced back to that one tiny event. That does not contradict what Christians believe. Because Christians believe and have always believed that there is an uncreated creator. That everything that exists today necessarily came from something, from what scientists call or refer to as a first cause. And that first cause, that thing that started that singularity, by necessity, had to be something that was not bound by space, because space didn't exist. It had to be something that was not bound by time, because time didn't exist. It had to be something that was not bound by matter, or by the laws of physics, or by the natural laws, because none of those things existed. The first cause existed above and beyond any of the natural laws that govern our universe today. 
Jesus simplifies it for the first century Christians who don't have computers and don't have smartphones and don't have the benefit of Wikipedia. He says, God is spirit. Exactly what we here sitting in this room, listening online in 2018, would believe that God is spirit. That there was an uncreated first cause that caused everything to happen. But see, the problem with spirit is it's spirit, right? It's like spirit, woo, spirit. So God, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says, God is spirit, but also God is father. There's a guy named Louis Giglio. He's a pastor of the uh, Passion City Church in Atlanta. Also started the Passion Movement a few years ago. And if you're not a college student, you may not have heard of it. But Louis Giglio said this, and I love this quote. He says, God is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. Now, let that sink in for a minute. God is not a reflection of your earthly father. God is not just like your dad. See, some of you, your dad was with you your entire life. Some of you, dad was great. Some of you, dad was really annoying. Some of you never met your dad. Right? Everywhere in between, God is not a reflection of your dad. He is the perfection of your dad. So even if your dad was the best dad that you could ever imagine, Think of all of the things that if you had an opportunity to change, you would change to make him perfect. That is who God is. God is the perfection of what our dad, our father, was supposed to be like. Jesus is praying one day, and his disciples, they're watching him pray. And they're looking at how he did it. And they thought about how they did it. And they said, hmm. I think we're doing something wrong here. Because what that happened over there doesn't look like what's happening with us over here. So they went to him and they said, um, Jesus, could you, you know, teach us how to pray? Because we see what you're doing, it doesn't look like what we're doing. So could you show us how to do what it is you're doing? Would you teach us to pray? And Jesus turns to his closest friends. And he says, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. And he's going to start off with one word. He's going to start off with one word that when he prays, and by telling us that, how we should pray, he starts off with this one word. He says, this is how you should pray. Father. Say it with me. Father, that's how you should start to pray. That is the starting place. Just say, Father. Father. Now, here's what's so great. God is not a male. God is not a man. God does not have a gender. God is spirit. Jesus says God is spirit, but God is also personal. And the best that I can do to explain to you the personal aspect of God, that part of God that is personal, the best that I can give you for your brains who are limited by time and limited by space and limited by the natural laws, 
the best that I can give you as an example so that you can understand what God is like is Father. Not your earthly father, but the perfection of Father. He says, that's the best that I can do. Father. So whenever you begin to talk to God, you begin simply by saying, Father. And this was the best relational picture that Jesus could give to us. The best picture of God. In fact, if you are one of those people who is rethinking starting up on your faith journey, or maybe you're someone who has never made that decision, who, who, who's always had a really, really good reason for not taking that step, then maybe you're, you're willing to take a chance. Then maybe tonight while you're lying in bed, you could just start with that. Just say, Father. I mean, I, I'm not sure I believe. It, all of this stuff still seems kind of weird. And Don't hold me to anything, but I'm going to take one step and I'm just going to say, Father. And Jesus says, that's enough. Jesus says, that's a good place to start. Start with Father. God is spirit. He's out there. He's everywhere. But God is Father. He's right here. He's personal. Later on, after the resurrection, John is writing a letter to a group of Jesus' followers. And, and he's thinking about all of the things that he's learned about God from Jesus. And he makes this statement that this statement that does not become just imprinted on the minds of the people that hear it. It's not just imprinted on Christians, but he makes this statement that has become imprinted on our culture. And a lot of people who claim this to be true have no idea where it came from. John says God is spirit. He says God is love. And then he or God is Father, and then he says, God is love. John is looking back through his childhood, he's looking through his adulthood, he's looking through all of the time that he spent with Jesus, he's, he's looking at his life, of everything that happened since he met Jesus. And John's idea of who God is has been completely turned inside out, because John was a Jewish man. And he grew up as a Jewish man. And Jewish people were taught that God loves the Jewish people and he tolerates everyone else. That's what they believed. And that is how John grew up. That is why in that time, a Jew would never go into the house of a Gentile and he would never invite a Gentile into his house because it would make him and his house and his family all ceremonially unclean. God loves the Jewish people, but he just tolerates everyone else. And John, who grew up on that God, who lost friends as martyrs, who had seen unspeakable bloodshed and chaos and a lack of love, he writes, God is love. That in everything that I've seen, in everything that I've heard, in everything that I've witnessed, that I've come to this conclusion that God is love. 
he continues and he says, God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. And this just seems unbelievable. Because when Jesus was about to be crucified, he gathers his guys together and he says, look, I know you're going to forget most of the things that I've taught you, but here is the one thing that you can never, ever forget. This will be the one thing that will separate you, those of you who have said that you are followers of me. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, the one thing that's going to separate you from everyone else around you, it's not going to be what you know. It's not going to be what you memorize. It's not going to be how often you go to church. The thing that people will see and that they will know that you are one of my followers is how you love one another. How you love one another. Now, for those of you who grew up in church, who've been Christians your entire lives, think about this. What Jesus said is, listen, it is not about how much of Scripture you memorize. It's not about how, how tightly and, 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 and completely you follow the rules. That is not how people will know that you are my follower. If you want people to see who you follow, if you want to stand up for what I am standing up for, Jesus says, love one another. Why? Because your love for one another is a reflection of the nature of God. Your love, how we treat each other, is a reflection of the nature of God. And we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because we all know shadows require the sun. Okay, confused looks. As shadows require the sun. Now, you can have sun without there being any shadows, but you will never see a shadow if there is no sun. Are you with me? As shadows require the sun, evil requires good. Goodness has to pre-exist evil. You can't see a shadow if there is no sun, which means that love must necessarily pre-exist evil. It is impossible for evil to have come first because you can't have the shadow without the sun. You can't have unlove first. You can't have a shadow if there is no sun. So love must pre-exist unlove. And John, who witnessed extraordinary violence, comes to the conclusion that God is love. You see, this is why God can't be evil. This is why the, the Roman gods and the Greek gods we know weren't real. Because they were doing all sorts of things, good and evil. But good has to pre-exist evil. And God cannot be evil. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because you know evil, you recognize evil, because you know good. 
you recognize injustice because you know justice. And whenever you appeal to justice, to, to somebody to do what is the just thing, whenever you appeal to love, when you say you have to do the loving thing, whenever you appeal to what is right, that you have to do the right thing, you're not doing it on purpose. But whenever you do that, you are declaring the essence and the existence of God. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.